Just one verse for our sermon text this morning. This is from Proverbs 18, verse 21. These are the words of God. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how clear and direct it is. We thank you for how it instructs us in our heart, in our soul, in our mind, in our tongues, in all the things that we do. Give us wisdom as we come to this text, as we come to this topic, and would you help us to apply these things to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, thank you for the prayers for my knee. One quick uh, update is... uh, that I am relatively pain-free, which is wonderful, but you can pray for patience and wisdom because since I don't have the pain to remind me that the knee is not good, I do stupid things sometimes. So you can, you can continue to pray for that. How easy is it to point out the sins of the world? In our corporate prayer time, in times of call to worship, in sermons, and throughout the week in different things that you read, things that you watch, how easy is it for us to notice and to point out the sins of the world? While it is right and proper for the church to identify and preach against the sins out there, the church must also preach against the sins in its own ranks. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter reminds us that judgment begins with the household of God. Judgment begins with God's people. He holds his people to the same standard that he holds the world to. And one area that we need regular reminders about is the use of our tongue. This is not particularly because there have been lots of reports of um, things that Trinity people are saying and it's all really bad. This is just because this is a regular thing that we need reminded of. We need reminders about how to use our tongue. As with many other things, God is not just interested in getting people to stop sinning with their tongue. Uh, The point of a sermon on the topic of the power of the tongue is not just to instruct people on what not to do, but rather that is just the first step. God desires that we use our words to do good. And we see this very evidently in this proverb that we have before us. Proverbs 18 verse 21. Death and life, death and life are in the power of the tongue. The tongue is a powerful tool that God has given to us, and it can be used for good, and it can be used for ill. Think uh, for a moment of how many uh, relationships that you have in in your lifetime that have been uh, hurt by your tongue or by a friend's tongue. How many relationships do you have that have been blessed by your tongue or by someone else's tongue. Somebody comes to you and at the right time they give you that that word that is fitting and is perfect for that time and it's an encouragement to you. It's a blessing to you. And conversely, how many times have you have some has somebody said something to you that tore you apart? Or you said something and you realize later that it tore them apart. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. To those who love to speak rightly, to speak in in the same ways that God tells us to speak, to imitate God with our speech, the tongue is a blessing. And to those who love to speak wrongly, it is a curse. There are many exhortations about the tongue or our words or our mouth or the lips throughout Scripture. I did a quick search and there are over 100 verses in Proverbs alone about the tongue about the things that we say. 
Why does God care so much about our words? I think there are four reasons that God gives so much attention to the tongue, to the lips, to the mouth, to words in Scripture. And so I want to walk through those four reasons with you. And then this is sort of a roadmap for the sermon this morning. We're going to talk about these reasons. Why does God think that the tongue is so important? Why does God think that our tongues are so important? And then we'll walk through four particular um, sins of the tongue that Scripture highlights for us. There's others, but we're just going to focus on four this morning. And then also four answers to those four sins. How do we speak with life in our tongues instead of with death in our tongues? So the first reason I want to highlight as far as why God cares so much, evidently cares so much in Scripture about our words is that words are central to God's person and work. Words, language, speech is central to his person and to his work. God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Hebrews 11 tells us that he framed the worlds by means of his spoken word. God didn't fashion the worlds by gathering together a lot of material and building things. He simply spoke and it was. Before God spoke, it wasn't. After he spoke, it was. He speaks things into existence and speaks them into existence in a complete way. Right? He says, let there be light, and there is light. He framed the worlds. He, he created the heavens and the earth simply by means of his spoken word. We're also told that the Father made all things by means of his Son, and his Son is the Word. John 1, 1 through 3, a fairly familiar passage, tells us that uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Jesus is the Word, and He is the Word that the Father speaks somehow. Try to, try to make sense of that. Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is also the Word by which God made the heavens and the earth and created all things. This is sort of a, a metaphysical reality that I think is hard for us to get our heads around, but that's because we're not triune like God is triune. So the Word is part of, um, is, the sec is, is what is used to describe this second person of the Trinity and not only that, God creates all things by means of his Son, who is the Word. But he, um, Hebrews 1 also tells us that he continues to hold all things together by the Word of his power. So not only does God use words to create all things, God uses his Word to hold all things together, to sustain all things. The fact that you are still here right now, that you still exist, is because God is still speaking. Were God to stop speaking, everything falls apart. Our existence is dependent upon the creator. And not just our existence in that he created us and then sets us off on our, to do our own thing, but he is the one who sustains our very being. And by his words then, in, in the end, in the final judgment, he will pass judgment over each person to either welcome him into heavenly rest or cast him out into outer darkness. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 25. When uh, he has the sheep and the goats, and those that are faithful, Jesus says, come and enter into your rest. And to those that are unfaithful, he casts them out by, the, by his words. He passes a judgment upon them with his words. 
And so this principle of word or language is both part of the triune nature of God, right? In the beginning was the word. And it is also a central part of his creating and sustaining and judging all things. God cares about words because they are a reflection of who he is and what he does. So, so why does, we, we look at Proverbs and there's over a hundred verses about the tongue, about the things that we say. And throughout the rest of scripture, there are many, many, many more exhortations about our words. Why does God care about words so much? The first reason is because it is central, they are, words are central to God's person and his work, who he is and what he does. Secondly, God has chosen words as the primary medium to reveal himself and his work. So if words are central to who he is and what he does, he has also chosen words as the primary way that he reveals who he is and what he does to us. God saw fit to communicate the truth about himself most clearly through the spoken and then the written words that comprise the Bible. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. This is just one place where we can see many of these things all together. First three verses of chapter 1. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, which we have recorded in the Old Testament. That he's, the author of Hebrews here is speaking about the Old Testament. All the words that God spoke to his people by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So when we read in Genesis 1 that God spoke and the worlds were created, Hebrews invites us to see that he, that's a reference to Jesus. That's speaking about the second person of the Trinity, whom now God is still speaking through to us. We have the revealed word in the person of Christ that has come, and this is in addition then to the spoken word that God has given to his prophets, which we see in the Old Testament. But it goes on. Who, speaking of Christ, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So God speaks in Genesis and that speaking is somehow also the second person of the Trinity. And by speaking through him, he creates all things. But God's not satisfied with that. He also wants to speak to us so that we would know what he has done. And that's why he spoke to the prophets. And why he has now spoken to us through his son and then through the apostles who have recorded what the son said. God uses words as the primary medium to reveal himself. It's not just who he is, it's not just what he does, but it's how he reveals himself to us. And he has made the world in such a way that the gospel message is primarily spread also through the medium of words. So it's not just that God has revealed himself to us so that we could know who he is by means of words, but then he has also said, now I want you to go and use words to tell everybody else about me. I want to reveal myself to the entire world by means of words. This is why Jesus and the Great Commission says, go and disciple all the nations, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. This teaching is done through words. 
Uh, look with me. Let's look at a couple other passages just to see this. Psalm 68. Again, this is in, in reference to the question, why does God care so much about words? Why does he give so many exhortations to us in Scripture about our tongue? Psalm 68, verse 11. This is a great uh, section in Handel's Messiah. Great chorus on, on this verse. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who complained it. Kings who, who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee. They flee. And she who remains at home divides the spoil. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scatters kings in it, it was white as snow in Zalman. This is a proclamation of the victory and the takeover of the king. The king being Christ. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans, turn... Flip over to Romans chapter 10. Paul's speaking about how it is that the gospel goes forth in, in this particular, in the particular context here. He's speaking about how is Israel going to believe in the gospel of Jesus as the Messiah. Starting in verse 14, Paul says, How then shall they, that is Israel, call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? If you follow the logic there, how are they going to call on Christ? How are they going to believe on Christ without a preacher? Without someone to declare with words the gospel? And how shall they preach unless they are sent, as it is written... Then quoting again from Isaiah, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Then quoting from Psalm 19, Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Why does God care about words, our words so much? Well, because it reveals, it's how he has revealed his person and his work. It's how he reveals himself to us and how he wants us to reveal him to the world around us. God created and has redeemed the world by means of his word. And now he sends his church out to imitate him. To imitate him in that creative, redemptive work by the means of our words. The primary means that you are going to shape the world in imitation of God, one of the primary means, is by your words. God framed the heavens by the words of his power, and he tells you to go out and bring the new heavens and the new earth. Be part of bringing the new heavens and the new earth by your proclamation of the gospel in the things that you say and the things that you do. Okay, so God cares about words because they are central to his person and his work, they are the primary medium that he has given to reveal that to us. And then thirdly, man uses words in imitation of God. Alluded to this already, so we're talking about going out and preaching the gospel. But consider this also. I know we're flipping around a, a, a bit. You don't have to turn to this passage, but let me read this for you in Genesis chapter 2. So this is just after God has created Adam, and he's placed him in the garden. Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. 
Back up to verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. When God creates Adam, one of the very first things that Adam does is to begin naming the animals. God created all the creatures, again, by the word of his power, by his spoken word. And then he sends them to Adam and Adam speaks their name. And whatever he calls them, that's what they are called. Adam has a similar and analogous authority in creation to God. Because he is God's vicegerent upon earth. God has, set, has told Adam, you are to have dominion over the earth. You are to rule all the creatures. And you begin that rule by naming, imitating me in my creative work. I speak and things are made. You speak and they're named. God cares about words because man uses words in imitation of God as his representative. This is the other thing that's striking about this passage in uh, Genesis chapter 2. After uh, all the animals come before Adam, and it's very clear that none of them are fit for him. Then the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of the ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, okay, God brings the woman to Adam, and the first thing that Adam does is he speaks and he speaks in poetry. The, the first recorded words that we have, the first recorded words, for those of you that don't like poetry very much, this is shocking. The first recorded words we have in the history of mankind are poetry, is poetry. It's a short little poem that Adam gives. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam speaks in poetry, describing and marveling at the glory of the woman. Paul tells us that the, glory, that the woman is the glory of the man. Man is the glory of Christ. So Adam is speaking, imitating God in describing and marveling at this glory that has been brought before him. Man's words then are intended to be used in imitation of God, ruling over creation, and glorifying the things that God has done. God creates things, and man glorifies them with his words. So that's the third reason man uses words in imitation of God. But because of sin, so this, all this happen, that happens with Adam is before the fall. Adam is imitating God by naming the creatures, he's imitating God and glorifying what God has created when he speaks this poem about Eve. But because of sin, our words often are not faithful imitations of God. And so the fourth reason that God gives so much attention to our words in his word is because our words reveal our heart. Jesus says in Matthew 12 that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let me read for you also Proverbs 10, verse 20. Proverbs 10, verse 20 says, The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. What's really 
striking about this and many other passages that speak about the tongue is the connection that is given over and over in scripture between the tongue and the heart. Right? In, in Hebrew poetry in, and Proverbs, you often have these parallelisms where these things are set next to each other to be contrasted or compared. So listen to this again. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. What's being compared in this proverb? The tongue and the heart. They go together. Jesus says, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. In fact, Jesus goes on in, in that passage in Matthew 12 to say that, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus um, says that at the day of judgment, we will give an account for every idle word that we speak. Every idle word that we speak, God notices. God takes down. Uh, Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this, on this section, notes that uh, if, if we come before the throne of grace and are not covered in the blood of Christ, then just one little idle word is enough to send us to hell. Apart from the grace of God, one idle word that you speak is so contrary to his person and to his work that you fall short of his holiness. Why does God care so much about your words? Because of who he is and what he's done, because of how he reveals himself, because of how he wants you to imitate him, and because your words reveal what's in your heart. And if we remember the proverb that we began with, death and life are in the power of the tongue, we should also realize that every time you open your mouth to speak, you are expending power. Your mouth is like a, a firearm. And every time you open it, the charge goes off. And the question is, is it being used for good or is it being used for evil? The fact of the matter is that your, the work of your tongue is always either for good or for evil. And the point that scripture makes is that the one thing that it is not is meaningless. Every word that you speak, there's one thing you can know for sure about every single word that you speak. And that is that it's not meaningless. Because Jesus says, for every idle word you will give an account. Because the tongue wields such power, we should take great care with our words. Your words, you should be very careful with. Not because we're a bunch of prudish, tight-lipped Christians. You should take great care of your words in the same way, that we talked about words being a firearm earlier, in the same way you take good care of firearms. They can be used for good and they can be used for evil. And they are very destructive when they are used for evil. James, in James chapter 3, um, the first half of James 3 is a wonderful um, meditation on the tongue. James talks about how the tongue is like, a, like a, little, a little spark, a little fire that ignites an entire forest. It's like a little rudder that steers an entire ship. James says that if you don't, if, if the man who can bridle his own tongue is a perfect man. Tongue is a wild beast that needs to be tamed. And it is very 
powerful. It's so powerful that Proverbs says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So this is why there's also other exhortations to be very careful with what we speak. Proverbs 10:19 says, "In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise." Why? Because you're being careful with the things that come out of your mouth. Proverbs 12:18, "There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health." Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So again, just by way of review, four reasons with overlap that God cares so much about the things that come out of your mouth. Because words are central to his person and his work. They're his creation and they reveal who he is. And he has chosen, secondly, to reveal himself by means of words and told his church to go and do that work. He cares about what you say because you're speaking about him. Thirdly, we use his words in imitation of him, ruling over the world, creating things, glorifying things. And then fourthly, because God cares very much about our words because they reveal what's in our heart. And God cares about our hearts. So let's dive into a few examples of death and life on the tongue. And before I do this, I want to give one other brief exhortation. In a uh, sermon like this, the temptation is always, as you're hearing these things, these par- especially when we get into the nitty-gritties, the particular sins that we are tempted to um, do with our tongue, the temptation is to have a, lo- a list of names of other people in your head. When we start talking about lying or rotten speech or slander or gossip or grumbling and complaining, it's very easy to have a, a separate person that seems to have that, that sin just pasted on their forehead in your mind. And Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye before you attempt to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There may be, uh, there, there, there may be some things that come to mind in the sermon, things you need to address and go speak to somebody about because you recognize how they are speaking and it's not glorifying to God. But that happens much later. Right now, I want you to examine yourself as we go through these uh, sins of the tongue. So first of all, God hates a lying tongue. Proverbs 6 Makes this very clear. Solomon gives us a list of the things that the Lord hates. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. So just a couple things to notice about this. Um, these are the seven things that are an abomination to the Lord, and two of them are about lying. Okay, God hates a lying tongue, and he hates a false witness that speaks lies. And then in addition to that, there's at least one other that is pretty directly related to speaking. That's the last one, one who sows discord among brethren. God hates lies. And he hates lies because he is the truth. And maybe more specifically, because Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
The only way that you can come and be in fellowship with the Father is through me. So lies are directly opposed to the very person of Jesus. And lies are obviously take a huge, there's a vast spectrum of types of lies or levels of lies or big lies or little lies. But scripture doesn't make, it makes some distinctions in terms of some kinds of deceit that are uh, not sinful. You think of the Hebrew midwives in Exodus when they're um, deceiving Pharaoh and hiding the newborns from him so that they can be spared. Instances like that. But apart from those kinds of distinctions, there's not a lot of distinction made about whether white lies are okay or half-truths or just little lies. But the big lies, that's what God really hates. No, God hates a lying tongue. And lies are the kind of thing that we, we begin to speak habitually. It's very easy to get to the point where somebody asks you a question and you respond with a lie for absolutely no reason. And God hates that lying tongue. God hates lies because Jesus is the truth. Lying is contrary to his nature. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about, uh, says, um, um, uh, let me turn there, I can't quote it. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, verse 25, Paul says, Putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Lying undermines the unity of Christ's body. This is why also in Proverbs 6 where it says that God hates one who sows discord among brethren, it's very fitting that that goes right alongside of lies. Paul says, put, put away lying because we're members of one another. What does lying do? Lying undermines the unity of the body of Christ. Lying is something that tears churches apart. And it always starts with little lies. So God hates lying. God hates a lying tongue. We must put that away. That's the first one. Second one, um, also in Ephesians, Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But, that, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Paul tells us to get rid of these corrupt words. The uh, Greek word there for corrupt is, is in other places used to describe rotten meat, rotten flesh. Okay? Let those rotten words never come out of your mouth. What are these rotten words? Um, I think Paul describes this um, a little bit later in chapter, four, chapter 5, verse 4. He says, Neither let filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, neither let these things be named among you, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So corrupt words, rotten words, filthy talk, coarse jesting, foolish talking. Calvin um, uh, Called, all these, called these things, all those expressions which are wont to be employed for the purpose of inflaming lust. It can be inflaming of sexual lust. It can be inflaming of your um, lust for attention. It can be used in terms of inflaming your, um, related to some of the other sins, sort of your lust for gossip and your lust for slander, for that foolish talking. 
Paul says, put these things away from you. And the reason that Paul gives for this is quite striking. He says, put this corrupt, this rotten talk out of your mouth, but rather what is, use what is good for necessary edification. Edification meaning building up, building up the body of Christ, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Um, think also of what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, Paul makes very clear that if you are in Christ, if you've been baptized in Christ, then you are alive in him now and you're dead to your sin. In fact, Paul says to reckon yourself dead to sin. That means, that means when you are tempted, you're to turn and look at Christ and remind yourself that I belong to Christ. I, I don't belong to those sins anymore. They have no power and no hold over me. I walk away from them. I run away from them like Joseph ran away from Potiphar's wife. I get away from them. And I can because I'm alive in Christ. I'm not chained down by those sins any longer. When we speak corrupt words, when we speak rotten words, um, and, and maybe to um, one example of this is, of course, the, what we tend to think of as cuss words. Cuss words that are typically derived from sexual activity. Okay, when we use that kind of corrupt, filthy talk, what are we doing? We're talking like a bunch of dead people. It has the smell of rotten flesh on its breath. When you talk like the unbelievers talk, you sound like an unbeliever. You sound like someone still dead in your sins. And so Paul says, get it out of there, but use what is necessary for edification, for building up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Don't breathe out death with your words. And I think that's particularly striking because we're going to talk about um, grumbling and complaining and gossip and slander in just a moment. But um, we tend to think of those, maybe slander especially, as being kind of death-dealing talk. Right? It's the kind of talk that really cuts and tears apart relationships and destroys people. But, but Paul refers to just filthy, corrupt speech as death talk. You, you have the smell of death on you when you talk that way. But you're not dead. If you believe in Christ, if you've been saved by grace, then we don't talk that way. What's amazing is to hear stories of people who um, came to Christ, especially later in life. This is not always the case, but one of the wonderful fruits of the Spirit is um, as soon as a, a person who um, comes to Christ later in life, the Spirit works in them and they're saved. And the next day, they no longer talk like a sailor. I've heard, I've heard numerous stories of the people this has happened to them. They wake up the next morning and like, I just don't even want to talk that way anymore. And the Spirit is working self-control in them, one of those fruits of the Spirit. And it's because that's what living in Christ sounds like. It sounds different. Okay, so first one was lying. We talked about second was rotten words, filthiness, coarse jesting. Third, gossip and slander are very similar tongue sins in Scripture. Gossip is idle talk or rumors usually about personal or private affairs. Proverbs uh, eleven thirteen. Doesn't use the word gossip specifically, but gets, to, gets the point. A talebearer reveals secrets. 
gossip. Did you hear what he did? Did you hear what she said? Revealing secrets, revealing things that are really none of your business. But he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. Are you the type that reveals secrets by the way you talk about people behind their back? Or are you the type that covers your friend, conceals matters? Not, again, not in the sense of lying, but covering it with love, because if it's not their business, then you shouldn't be talking to them about it. A really helpful way to think about how do I identify whether the, the talk that I'm having is gossip or not is just a simple question of, uh, um, are you and the person that you're talking to a solution to the problem that you're talking about? Are you and the person you're talking to a solution to the problem that's going on that you're, that you're talking to them about? Because if you're not part of the solution, then you have no business talking about it. And this is a good, a good, uh, a great story that um, uh, Pastor Doug Wilson was here last week, and his mom had a, has a wonderful story about um, how she dealt with gossip. Uh, people would come to her. She was a pastor's wife, so people would come to her and be really chatty about things going on in the church in a very unhelpful, gossipy way. And she got to the point where she would take them and hear them out and say, really, is that true? And then she'd take their arm and say, well, let's go talk to them about it. And shortly thereafter, people didn't come to her very much anymore. Because, and the reason was, is if you're going to come and talk to me about this problem, then I'm assuming that you want me to be part of the solution to that problem, so let's go to deal with that problem. It does nobody any good for the two or three or four of you to sit back in a corner and chat about that problem over there. That's revealing secrets and not being faithful friends. Slander is very similar, but tends to be more with malicious intent. Another proverb for you, Proverbs 16, 27. An ungodly man digs up evil. He's looking for things to dig up about somebody. And then go and reveal to somebody else. And it is on his lips like a burning fire. Again, remember James talking about the tongue like a fire, a spark that ignites an entire forest. This is what slander is like. Slander is um, idle talk, rumors about personal or private affairs, and typically with malicious intent. The intent to undermine somebody's character. The intent to destroy their reputation. The intent to harm them. It, this is, I think, a little chilling. One of the Greek words that is used for slander or sometimes translated malicious gossip in the New Testament is diabolos, which is the same word that is also translated devil. I think God thinks that gossip and slander are devil talk. It's diabolical. Another quick proverb for you, Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26, verses 20 through 22. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no tail bearer, 
we might say gossiper, strife ceases. Gossip brings strife. And what's so ironic about that is often you start gossiping because there's already strife and you think that's going to be part of the solution. I'm going to go vent a little bit, get this off my chest about these things that are going on over here. Proverbs says it doesn't actually deal with the problem, it inflames the problem. A charcoal is burn is to burning coals and wood to a or sorry as charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles, and they go down into the inmost body. Those little little bits of information, they sure taste good, and they're diabolical. Gossip and slander are devil talk. And, and children, there's a good application for you here. Um, in your home, your parents probably have different rules about um, what kinds of things you should bring to them, what kinds of information you should bring to them about what's going on with your siblings. So first of all, listen to whatever your parents' rules are. But in general, if, if the, your sibling is doing something and it's not hurting somebody and they're not... Um, doing something very explicitly that they've been told not to do. It's not really your business to go and tell your parents about it unless you've talked to the sibling first. Right, when there's a problem, kids, you all, I know that you've all had this problem, this situation, because I was a kid and I've got lots of kids, so I know this happens. Right, you know times where there's something going on between you and a sibling and they've sinned against you and you run to mom and dad. And you tell mom and dad, this is what they did. And mom and dad probably at some point have said something to you like, don't be a tattletale. Don't be a talebearer. Go and talk to that sibling first. Because if you want your parents to be part of the solution, they're going to come into the, come into the situation and most likely you're also at fault. First go and deal with it with your sibling, with your brother or sister, and then, if there's no solution there, if that doesn't resolve it, then go bring your parents in. But first, go talk to your brother or sister about it. And part of the reason for that is you're starting to train yourself to not be a gossip, to not be a talebearer, to not be somebody who practices devil talk. Go and talk to your brother or sister first. Okay, so God hates a lying tongue. We're to get rid of corrupt speech. God hates gossip and slander, this devil talk. Lastly, grumbling and complaining um, is often thought of as an acceptable sin. Um, you think of something which seems so uh, mild, right? Um, to complain about the weather. Honestly, if you don't complain about the weather, there's, there might be something wrong with you. Is <laughs> the way we think about it, right? It's an acceptable sin. It's appropriate to be fussy about the way the sky is. We might justify our complaining because of the good things that you are doing, right? I'm doing really good things, but, and so because of that, I'm, I'm, I'll allow myself a little bit of complaining in this other area, right? I'm working really hard. I'm, I'm really being faithful to provide for my family, and because of that, it's really okay if I complain about my job a little bit. Because really, I'm, I'm being faithful. All right, fill in the blank. You, you, 
You get the idea. We, we can justify our complaining because of the good works that we're doing in other areas. Um, Philippians chapter 2. Paul addresses this. There's a great old Steve Green song on this verse, which you should all have stuck in your heads, as I do. Philippians 2, uh, verses, verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Complaining and disputing, grumbling, complaining, fussing with our mouths, this is no different than the world. We justify our complaints because how hard our circumstances might be. The trouble is you can almost always find somebody whose circumstances are harder. Paul says that in the midst of all of, in, in, in Philippians, writing from prison, writing chained to a Roman soldier, having been beaten, dragged out of towns, stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked, among other things, says, I've learned in all things to be content. And this is the man who says, don't grumble and dispute with one another, but rather be the lights that shine in a dark world. Complaining and grumbling is focused on your particular circumstances and your feelings about them, which is not where our focus should be. Okay, now we could also look at the Psalms and find lots of Psalms where the psalmist does complain to God, does bring his complaints before God, but perhaps in a similar way to, um, as we were talking about with gossip, the difference is he's bringing them to God. Because he's bringing them to the one that can actually do something about his circumstances. Who can actually do something about his situation. Don't be grumbling and complaining in, in your, in your chit-chat. Don't be grumbling and complaining in your idle talk. Because... God cares about what comes out of your mouth because it reveals what's in your heart. And if you're complaining with your mouth, that's demonstrating that you're complaining and discontent in your heart. Okay. That's all the negative. Positively, what are we to do? Instead of lying, we are to speak truth to one another as part of the body of Christ. We're to speak the truth to one another. Psalm 34 tells us that um, who, um, who wants to uh, live long and see good life? He who keeps his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. If we want to live in good fellowship with one another and in good fellowship with God, we put away lying. We're vigilant against the smallest of lies. We speak the truth faithfully always. Put on speaking the truth. Instead of rotten and filthy speech, our words should be good for building up the household of God and full of thanksgiving. When Paul says to put away filthiness and foolish talk and coarse jesting, 
He gives a very clear example of what we're to put on instead. Put away those things and instead put on the giving of thanks. Thanksgiving is a wonderful antidote to most of your mouth sins. When you're tempted to open your mouth and out's going to come something sinful, instead, check yourself and give thanks for that sky above you, whatever color it is, because God put it there. Give thanks instead of the filthy, rotten speech. Uh, Interestingly, in, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul says that our speech is to be seasoned with salt. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each one. Let your speech be with grace. Just like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, don't let that rotten word come out of your mouth, but rather edify one another that it may impart grace to the hearers. And Paul says this, be seasoned with salt. Um, I think there's a possibility that this is a reference back to the Old Testament sacrifices. In, Le- in Leviticus 2, the priests were told in all of their grain offerings to make sure that they covered it in salt. And it was called the salt of the covenant of your God. Let your, let your speech be salted with the grace of God's covenant and his promises to you. Because when your speech is salty like that, It imparts grace to those who hear it. They taste the salt of God's goodness instead of tasting the rottenness of your filthy talk. Season your speech with the salt of God's grace. Instead of devil talk, gossip and slander, God-fearers should continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Hebrews 13. Instead of gossiping and slandering the people around you, continually offer with your lips the sacrifice of praise. When you're tempted to talk about how awful somebody else is, stop yourself and talk about how good God is. Replace that that devil talk with worship. And we do this because then we cover with love instead of exposing our neighbor's faults or sins. Remember the proverb, he, the talebearer reveals secrets, but a faithful friend covers a matter. We're to cover one another with love. This is a, um, sometimes this, this uh, proverb, to, to co- love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes this proverb is misunderstood as meaning that if I'm going to let love cover a multitude of sins, that means I never bring up somebody else's sin to them. The problem with that is, that's, that's Peter who quotes the proverb directly. The problem with this is that James also alludes to this proverb at the very end of James, and he says that a man who goes and confronts a brother about his sin and brings him back covers a multitude of sins. Okay? Covering with a, uh, love covering a multitude of sins means either covering it over and letting it go, and letting your love for God and you know God's love for you and God's love, Christ's love for that other person cover all of their sins and, and not let it affect you. Or it means, if it's the kind of thing that you can't ignore, it means examining yourself, taking the log out of your own eye and going and in love confronting the other person. Presenting what, you, what seems to you to be the problem before them and then asking them to go and deal with it with the Lord. Both are covering love 
or covering a multitude of sins with love. So instead of lying, we speak the truth. Instead of rotten, filthy speech, we give thanks. Instead of devil talk, we worship God. Instead of grumbling, we should do everything with our eyes fixed on Christ, rejoicing and giving thanks in all things. And 1 Thessalonians 5 says to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. And that's not something where we're ignoring our circumstances in order to rejoice always or to give thanks in everything. But rather, it's fixing our eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ in the midst of your circumstances, rejoicing in Him and in His work, giving thanks for Him and His work, and giving thanks for the many other blessings that He's given to you. Take your complaints before God, but do so with thanksgiving. Paul says in Philippians 4, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Instead of complaining to your friend about what's going on, go and talk to the Lord about it. Bring your anxieties before the Lord, because there are things that make us anxious. There are things that seem to be worth complaining about. So take them to the Lord with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, that's key. Replace that grumbling and complaining with rejoicing and giving thanks in all things. And all of this, I hope, helps us to see that there really is life in the power of your tongue. I think we understand and we get the the fact that there is death in the power of our tongue. But there is also life. Let me give you just one other proverb as an example of this. Proverbs 12, verse 25. And this, think of this also in the context of how your tongue can be life to others instead of wielding death to others. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. The things that you worry about can bring dark, dark clouds over you. But a good word makes it glad. This is why the the life of the body of Christ is so important. You all have life in the power of your tongue. Will you use it to relieve your brothers and sisters in Christ? Will you use it to spread the power of the gospel? Or will you excuse yourself and give in to the devil talk, the rotten words, the lies? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Out of the heart the mouth speaks, and how you speak is a measure of your heart. James 1, James says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. In other words, your, the way that you talk is a measure of your faith. The way that you talk is a measure of your faith. How you talk is a reflection of your attitude toward Christ. If you believe in Christ and in the grace that he poured out upon you by giving his life for you on the cross and then raising you out of your sins, if that knowledge of him is in your heart, then it should be evident in your speech. And so we pray with the psalmist, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, 
O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. We have been raised from death to life. And so we should talk like it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, as we go out, this is our prayer. Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight because we know that you are our strength for all these things and because you have redeemed us and saved us and raised us from death to life. In Jesus' name, amen.